I normally engage in something of a preamble when I'm speaking on Sunday mornings, and today will be no exception. And I frequently stand up and allude to current affairs, and I'm going to do that as well. This has been a very significant week. If you've been even a half alert, a quarter alert, a tenth alert, you should have been aware this has been a very significant week in terms of the gospel and current affairs and the government and the legislation and the European Court of Human Rights. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Well, some nodding heads, that's good. But before we go there, let's just remember this individual. What's her name? It's Malala Yousafzai. She was discharged from the QE in Birmingham after just three months of having a bullet through her head. That's nothing short of a miracle in its own right. But I did a little bit of research. Malala Yousafzai, there's a bit more to it than you might think. Her name means grief-stricken. How prophetic that might have been, with a bullet a few millimetres another way. And it's derived from this individual, who you won't have heard of, I hadn't heard of till I looked into it. She's a Pashtun poetess and a warrior woman. So when her father and her mother named her as a child, they thought she will be a warrior. What courage! I've already spoken about this. But this is something to do with the world in which we live. You see that little clip there of the two smiling nurses at the QE in Birmingham? You pick up the video for that on the internet and you'll find that as she walks out of those doors, there's a gentleman on her right whose face is marbled out. I thought, what's this? I could understand them marbling the faces of the nurses out. They're not going to marble her face out because she's so well known. And then somebody explained to me, that is the special branch security person who's permanently in the ward to protect her from assassination. There's a bounty on that girl's head. Some of you have children of a higher age. What would you think if your child had a price on her head for some fanatic to kill? Sobering, isn't it? And yet her father is himself a resolute individual. And what I love about this is, she's from a Muslim culture. She's from a country that's not sympathetic to Christian things. To people of Pakistan, Britain is Christian. They don't understand things like the census says only 59% of the nation now reckons to be Christian. And we're a largely secular and irreligious and godless community, indulgent and plummeting towards hell. They don't spot that. They just, sorry to put it so starkly, but that I'm afraid is the truth. Sugar the pill if you like, don't affect the fact. But to them, she has come from a Muslim country and a Christian company, a Christian country is sorting her out. That does my heart good. That speaks more than any amount of politics and ecumenicalism and interfaith rubbish and all that kind of thing. Don't forget the person who picked up the, the chap who, the, the good Samaritan who redeemed that individual. He was an alien to that person. His own kindred didn't look the other way. It was a foreigner who redeemed him. And there's something in this. That girl has now been discharged. They'll reconstruct her head. I don't think they'll let her go back to school in the Swat Valley. They'll have to protect her. But she's become a figurehead. And this 15-year-old has put the Pakistan government on order because they've been very duplicitous and ambiguous in their attitude towards extremists, harbouring them and not saying anything. Now the government's got to nail its colours to the mast. Will it root out these people and deal with its extremism and not be so ambivalent and equivocal in their ways? Because if they don't, They'll have the world and their own people on their backs. Something to think about. Pray for her. Pray for her family. They're protected in a safe house in Birmingham. And her father has a job for three years with a consulate in Birmingham. 
Their life is an inspiration to me. Let's have a look at something else. Do you know the lady in the top left of the picture? Somebody tell me who she is. Nadia Elweda is her name. And why is she holding a cross around her neck? Speak up. Correct. She, back in 2006, was told by a bullying employer called British Airways that she had to take that thing off. It does my heart good to see an employer like that humiliated. Yet again, I hope. What they did to her, they said, you've got to take that off. And she said, I won't. I won't. So they dismissed her in 2006. There was then a public outcry. And they reinstated her in 2007, but on a kind of discretionary basis. Didn't put them in their place. But because she's a woman of principle, she fought the matter through the courts. And the British government, the British government and the British courts did not support her, as so often they have not done in the past. This angers me. The nation who sent the gospel to the four corners of the earth, the nation that based its legislature and its law, rules and everything on the gospel and biblical principles, decides, if you please, that because the cross is not an essential element of the expression of the Christian faith and its wearing is not compulsory, it cannot be protected as a religious freedom. I, yes, I, I'm speechless. That is an accomplishment. Have we planeted so far from our heritage as a nation? Have we abandoned so utterly the principles on which our nation was built that we can even postulate such a thing? And this lady, 61 now, she was a bit younger then, took her case to the European Court of Human Rights. And they ruled in her favour. Thank God. Thank God. They said that wearing of the cross is an expression of the Christian faith. And therefore should be a protected religious freedom. That is a wonderful result. And I just want to share a couple of other little things with you. There's more to this lady than meets the eye. I wouldn't have known this if I hadn't looked at it. You won't know this unless you've done the same research. She used to work for Gulf Air, Kuwait Airlines, Egypt Air, Ghana Airways and Malaysian Airlines. Well known for their Christian sympathies, aren't they, those nations? Yeah? They never objected once to her wearing a cross. How about that? She is in a minority. In her native Egypt, she was raised as a Coptic Christian. Boy, they're having a tough time now. We won't talk about that today, but if you have half a concern, look into it. In a predominantly Muslim country, she was never victimized for wearing the cross there. Crazy, isn't it? And her late father was an eminent Egyptian eye servant, surgeon. Her mother was a British midwifery sister, and so on and so forth. How about this? Her great-grandfather, Captain Thomas Paine, co-founded the Salvation Army. Amazing what you find when you look, isn't it? And there's more. Her paternal grandfather was a Lutheran minister. She's not a very ostentatious person, but on a matter of principle, this little 61-year-old lady said, there is truth at stake here and I will not be cowed. I will not allow my employer to bully me. She said that the lawyers, she said, were, were, were hostile, tyrannical is the word she used. Bullying her. She feared for her situation, she feared for her well-being, she feared for her job. Well, she lost it at that stage. And a remarkable thing here, sorry for dwelling on this, but this is the context in which we live. It's important. 
I was afraid at times, but my colleagues were very supportive. 257 of them, many of different faiths and nationalities. They all signed a petition, and I'm so grateful to them. But the management did not make it easy for me. After all, I had caused them acute embarrassment. Listen to this. This week's ruling can only compound the airline's humiliation. Judges said that while British Airways had a right to protect its corporate image, Nadia's cross was discreet and could not have detracted from her professional appearance. They added, there was no evidence that the wearing of hijabs or turbans by other employees had a negative impact on British Airways' brand either. This is hugely significant, hugely significant, because it means when the Christian Legal Centre and others go to court to defend the rights of Christians who are being persecuted, they have what is known in legal terms as a precedent. And it's very difficult for the courts to go against precedent. The other individuals who are up there, Shirley Chaplin on the top right, Gary McFarlane there, and this one I'm going to trouble pronouncing. I'm going to have to just look at my notes. Her name is Lillian Ladele. I'm not going to talk about their circumstance in detail because that's not the basis of the message today. And I want to dwell upon other things. But if you have a concern, if you have half a concern, turn the TV off, fire up the internet, and look into these things. Their cases were not upheld by the European Court of Human Rights. But even so, very significant things came out of it. And I'll mention just this. The British government, I simmer with anger over this. You laugh. You don't want to be the object of my simmering anger. You certainly don't want to be the object of my wife's simmering anger. Do you know, last night, she said, what's in this box you bought off eBay? And I, I was a bit embarrassed. I said, well, it's some... Um, it's a docking station for a computer. Well, actually, it's ten of them. What? Ten? I tried to mollify the situation, but I only paid £19 for them. Ten? She said, what you need is a workshop. I said, I've already got a workshop. I think what you need is a home back. <laughs> That's a surprise. You rotter. I will just mention the British government declared that the freedom to resign and choose a job which did not conflict with one's Christian convictions constituted religious freedom. What tosh? If you don't like it, you can lump it. That's your freedom, mate. What are we getting to as a nation? This used to be called bullying. This used to be called coercion. The court, however, said that was not so. Unfortunately, the British government always acquiesces to the European court. Now they're going to have to swallow that bitter pill and sour may it taste. So, this brings me to my theme today. How to offend without being offensive. Okay? It's very easy to offend whilst being offensive. I've done it many times. Try not to do it to you this morning. But, we've been singing about the cross. What was at the centre of Nadia Alweda's issue? The wearing of a cross. There was a human element to this. There was a professional element to this. But there was a spiritual element too. Her employers wanted to quash the expression of the gospel. 
And the length and the breadth and the globe and the start to the finish of time, you will find forces at work that will seek to suppress the expression of the gospel. But the gospel will not be suppressed. God will not be cowed. Men may have their way short time, but there comes a reckoning. There comes a reckoning. And I wouldn't like to be in some of those people's shoes. We're considering this morning our strategy for communicating the gospel. And we've got to start with a fundamental principle. This is from Romans 9, chapter 33. Please turn with me to it. Just as a slight aside, one of the guests who's coming to the Y course in Bransburton, uh, Dennis, um, I rang him up to check he was coming. Going, yes, I'm coming, he said. It's six weeks, isn't it? And I thought, wow, I'm inviting him just for the first night. And he's come back and said, I'm coming to six. I felt like saying, if you can do that, you might as well come to all seven. But I thought, I'll leave that for a future stage. Rang him up last night to say, are you available next Friday? Oh, yes, he said. I'm coming. So... Pray the weather doesn't get in our way next Friday when we resume just a week later. So here we go. Verse, in my translation it reads like this. These are verses from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, being reiterated by Paul. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Some translations refer to this as a rock of offence. And there is an element of this in the translation. I'm not a linguistic scholar in these biblical languages, but if you look at the different translations, this language of stumbling, it's something that will trip people up. It's something that will cause them an issue. It's something they will not be comfortable with. This gospel, which has proved so valuable to us and which we're honouring today in our worship and we're declaring in, in all that we share, is not readily received in the heart of man. In marketing terms, it's not an easy sell, is it? What we're saying to people is, your life is fundamentally flawed. It's a bit like being the person who has to explain to somebody that they haven't got a minor ailment, they've actually got cancer and it's terminal. Like explaining to somebody they're about to lose their job and they're of an age where they're not going to get another. All their investments in which they've depended have evaporated and they have nothing. Who'd want to be in the position of bringing that news to bear? Not me. I like to be the cheeky chappy with the happy remarks, like with the humorous anecdotes and making people laugh and encouraging people. That's the territory I'm comfortable in. Sometimes in life, we have to do things that are a little bit uncomfortable, sometimes a lot uncomfortable. We're going to do a practical exercise in a few moments, which some of you might find slightly uncomfortable, Um, but we'll be there in just a second. Simply living a good life and doing your best, the maxim of many people's lives in the 21st century, is not sufficient. It's better than living a bad life and not trying. That's certainly to be said for it. It's not sufficient. The corridors of hell will be populated with a large number of people who've lived a good life and have done their best. We have a duty to make this position clear, not in some haughty, condemnatory, supercilious way. It troubles me. I used the expression earlier, I said the world is plummeting, the nation's plummeting towards hell. That 
bothers me. It bothers me that members of my family, it bothers me that close friends, it bothers me that colleagues and their present course are not going to make it. That makes it my responsibility when the opportunity presents itself to at least get a milligram of the message across. Think of a pair of scales. You confront people in their lives full of worldly cares. They're doing their best and sometimes they're doing pretty well in the circumstances. They're like a pair of scales that's heavily weighed against God. You may not move it all in one go. But if you can put a little bit in the positive side, over time it will accumulate and eventually the scales will balance And a person can make a decision then. This is the beauty of it. God is not a bully. He's authoritative, almighty. He has the universe in the palm of his hands. With one exhalation from his nostrils, he could cause us to evaporate. It's only his grace and his forgiveness born through the Lord Jesus Christ that protects us from that. The way, just to state, just for clarity and avoidance of doubt, the way and the only way through this is to acknowledge our inadequacy before God, to receive his forgiveness and to accept a new start in Jesus Christ. That should stimulate us every morning when we rise from our slumbers and the new day begins. I thank you, Lord. That somewhere in all this process, you thought me worth seeking out. For all my failings, for all my perpetual inadequacies, even now after all these years, you persevere with me. Who is this God that we serve? Why should he persevere so? Would he not have an easier existence surrounded by angels and not troubled with all the hassle we cause him? There's a very simple answer to this. Because he created us. He created us for the express opportunity that we would return to him. I'm not going to talk about it today, but I've been thinking a lot about this parable of the prodigal son. I received a very heartfelt letter from my older daughter at Christmas. I'm not going to share it with you. But she said in it, I'm glad you're my dad. Doesn't seem so long ago at Longcroft School, we were heading towards the gates and she turned to Debbie and I and said, don't be offended, mum and dad. But this is the point where I disown you. I thought, well, other children sit with their parents. Why does, am I such a social liability? Mind you, I used to think that of my father, so can't be too haughty about it. The truth is this. Every single man, woman and child on earth is like the youngest son in that story. He's taken his opportunity, wittingly or unwittingly, and is far from God. And God is looking every day to see whether there's going to be evidence of that individual coming back. Now, we're not told very much in this story, but we can be the people who encourage... You could say to somebody, look, living in a pigsty is not a good idea. You were better off back at home as a servant. Give it a try. Maybe your dad will have you back on more humble terms. Give it a go. We can be the catalyst... This is a bad metaphor because a catalyst is something that accelerates a reaction without getting involved. But we can catalyze the process for the sake of this point. And so we should. Unsurprisingly, megaphone evangelism does not yield a very great success rate. By this I mean standing on a box, broadcasting the truth without any regard for those who are listening to it. 
They used to be exclusive brethren who'd stand at the top of my mother's road in Birmingham and they would bawl away at the top of their voice. You are going to hell. You must repent. You must be born again. I I am born again and I found it exceedingly off-putting. And when they took a breath, I went up and said, excuse me, I believe what you're saying. Do you? Of course we do. I said, well, I could be forgiven for thinking. You're doing this because you feel you must do it. Have you thought about sitting down with somebody and befriending them? Have you thought about tending to somebody's needs? Have you thought about making yourself vulnerable? Have you thought about not exploiting the, the unprepared ears of your listeners? Megaphone evangelism doesn't yield a high success rate. Likewise, cold calling isn't very good either. I'm being inundated now with phone calls of people wanting to do surveys. I hand them to Debbie and she deals with them very well. The overwhelming success in getting the gospel message across, this is nothing you haven't heard before, is by gaining positive, and getting positive consideration is by acquaintance. Acquaintance. This is why we're going to have an evening with Paul Bell. We're going to invite people to a meal and get to know them. And we're going to invite them to come on a course. We're not sugaring the pill. We're just saying we rather like your company. We're doing something for you. Have an enjoyable evening. This is what we're talking about. No surprises. If it, if it looks interesting, come and have a look. You've heard me say it before, and you'll say it again, but our performance, taken as a whole, is still somewhat patchy. Now, what I'm going to do now, hopefully with your cooperation, is do a little illust- exercise to illustrate the point. You'll have noticed the chairs are slightly further apart in this direction than normal, and what I'm going to do is, I'm going to number you, like you used to at school, one and two, And then I'm going to ask those with one number to stay where they are and shuffle together and those to move to the other side of the room. If you have a Bible and using it, take it with you because I'm not going to move you back until the end of the meeting. Okay? And I'll explain why I'm doing this in just a moment. Okay, so here we go. One, two, 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 one, two. One, two, it's like a microphone test, isn't it? One, two, one, two, one, two on the back there at the right. One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. I'm struggling to count any further. One, two, one, two, one, two. Did I do you already? One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. And you guys at the back can just watch on. Okay? So if you just like to migrate to the... If you're number one, will you stay on this side, please? And if you're number two, would you move to this side, please? Take your Bibles if you have them. Sit next to somebody, please. Make sure nobody's sat on their own. And ideally, sit with somebody you might not normally sit with. Sorry, we're arguing about One, two. So you're... What? One, two. So you go over there. What number are you? Over there. Right, thank you for cooperating thus far. What I'd like you to do is, if you're sitting next to somebody whom you don't know, first of all, find out who they are. Introduce yourself, find out who they are, and then find out their circumstances. Are they employed or not? What are they doing and what kind of a week they've had? And that's it. 
And then I'm going to select one or two of you to find out how you've got on. Okay, we could of course proceed from this point to coffee, or in the case of the ladies, for the entire remainder of the day. Now why have I done this? Why have I done this? Some of you will have fulfilled this little exercise without even thinking, what's he on about? Uh, There's no big deal with this at all. Some of you will have found it a little bit awkward maybe. Well, maybe it's unnecessary distraction. We're in church after all. Why can't I just get on and preach conventionally? Why does he have to do ridiculous things? That's a question I can't answer. A few of us may have found this exercise quite difficult, and you've only reluctantly engaged in it because I've put you next to people who you don't know very well. I hope that won't be a big discouragement to you, and thank you for cooperating if you felt that way. The issue is this, if we are to make an impact, if we are to put ourselves in the place of even having the opportunity to communicate the gospel, if we are to exploit these wonderful things that are coming out of the courts and so on and so forth that we alluded to earlier, we're going to have to develop the skill to talk to people with whom we're not already acquainted. Here, as much as anywhere, we naturally gravitate to our friends and sit with them. We, can, we even sit in the same places and get a bit hoity-toity if somebody sat in our seat. And we think, we think to ourselves, how ridiculous and, and religious it is for churches that had pews with names on them. But we don't behave that differently, truth be known. Because we get accustomed to our habits and who we sit with and who we feel comfortable with. And there's nothing wrong with that. But a family came in here two weeks ago I immediately introduced myself to them because I didn't recognize them. 
introduced Richard to them when he came out from the inner sanctum before the meeting so that they knew who was in front of them at the church. And they're in quite a sad place because of the way they've been treated elsewhere and they're looking at the options. What would your response have been? Would you have even noticed them? Would you have taken the trouble to say hello, introduce yourself? I don't find it difficult talking to strangers. My wife once said I could make conversation with a lamppost. I recollect saying, well, maybe you should paint yourself green and put a light on your head, and then maybe I would talk to you a bit more often. I think we had that exchange, didn't we? I think we had that exchange, didn't we? Yes, 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 the lamppost one. Yes. But I am not an expert. There is no expertise in this game. But if you have half a heart for the plight of people who don't yet know the Lord, something within you will say, I don't at least want them to be lonely when I'm sat near to them. We get hung up on the idea that evangelism is only evangelism if we preach a gospel in 30 seconds. Let's think of this in in wider terms. The first thing we need to do is become acquainted with people. We already said that we're going to have to bring them some pretty grim news. I'm sorry, Bob. You've lived a thoroughly good life, professionally disciplined. Everything you've done is good. But you know something? Your life's rubbish. You're going to hell. It's a theatrical illustration, Joy. I hope. My mother was here last weekend. I got two stubborn goats to deal with, not one. And incidentally, you will not insult Joy by calling her a stubborn goat. You will insult her if you you accuse her of being a half-hearted goat. I'm right. So I got that one right. (laughs) It had two in it, didn't it? (laughs) Goats are fine creatures. It's a term of endearment. If we're going to influence the community in which we live and make this gospel accessible, you've heard me say many times, the gift of the evangelist is to make God accessible. And if we're going to make this gospel, which is the embodiment of who he is, we will need to develop the skill of acquainting ourselves with people we don't know or we don't know very well. Don't put on a front. Don't become somebody you're not. Be genuine. Interestingly, I've started this last week with my training to become a flying instructor down in Tatenhill. It's hard work. The chief instructor keeps calling me Bloggs, which isn't quite my name. It seems to be a universal euphemism for people's surname. But I had this inkling he was a Christian. And it grew and it grew and it grew and it grew. I dropped out so many hints. I even told him I got a piano in the back of my car for a Songs of Praise event at Lindham House the following night. And that's why I hadn't brought another visual aid with me. And he still didn't bite. So I had enough of it. And when we were walking back from the aircraft, I said, excuse me, Craig, I might be right, I might be wrong. But is you, are you or a member of your family involved in a church? And he said, yes, all of us. I thought, wow, that was like pulling teeth. 
But sometimes God will give you little endorsements. I, had, I thought to myself, my work at Bombardier is likely to evaporate fairly soon. I've not done badly. I've had 11 years out of a three-month contract. I can't complain. And I thought, well, I'm, I've, I chose this airfield because it's near to Derby where the work is. Maybe I should have thought again under these developing circumstances. But then God rolls up and says, actually, no, I want you here. I've put a kindred spirit in this place for you to benefit as much as to benefit you. This is, God does not show up occasionally and in a digital manner just do something and then evaporate. It's the way of the world. He's with you all the time. All the time. Through the thick and the thin, the good and the bad. When the things you're proud of and the things you're ashamed of, he's there. And he wants to participate. So, we, we started doing this um, the year before last. We ran a couple of workshops and some of those of you participated here. I apologise. I really do, to those of you who have participated, for not being able to follow this up sooner. But these are the kind of things we covered, and I would commend this to you. We we, um, developed and practiced our testimonies. By the way, on the server at Bombardier in Derby, there are a set of directories, and there's one called Best Practice, and they've spelt the word practice wrongly. (laughs) Amazing, isn't it? They put put an S in it rather than a C. Okay, We share experiences and we encourage one another. Small groups, we consider practical situations and opportunities we can deal with. For example, I was in the office in Derby just before Christmas and somebody rather haughtily said, there's somebody round here playing God. What would you have done? Tried to bury yourself? So I stood up and said, yes, his name's God. That's a milligram in the other side of the scales, by the way, or maybe even a microgram. But it's a little weight in the positive sense. So, we, we do some role play. Notice the circumflex over the O there. We need to be correct in these things because we're European now. And, um, and we usually eat some nice cake because nothing seems to work without that. Or donuts or something. They seem to... Not quite so sophisticated in brands, Burton. they prefer donuts to cake. Or mind you, when I did speak there, they had cake. So maybe I'm maligning them. Okay. We, this, activity will, this activity will resume... And um, we're going to build on what's before. If you want to develop and practice your testimony, then you'll be greatly benefited by this. It's not a teaching session in that I'm, or anybody else is going to try and show you how it's done. It's an opportunity in a safe environment to practice and to develop and get over the self-conscious. The worst time to practice your testimony is when you need to exercise it. It really is. And the other thing, it's an opportunity for encouragement. And then, you know, thereafter we might give opportunity for people to share what they've developed. Um, these workshops, will, workshops will, will help you in that process. You see, there's a lot of remarks these days about friendship evangelism. I'm not, I don't like that word for two reasons, or that expression for two reasons. Firstly, because I'm not sure there should be any other kind of evangelism. And secondly, it smacks of um, disguising the offence of the cross that we spoke about earlier. Sugaring the pill, making it easier to swallow. We've got to tell them the truth eventually. So let's be sensitive and tactful, but, 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 but not disingenuous from the start. What we will continue to do, we'll continue to stage high-quality events like we've had before. The Springs Dance up there on the left and the Associated Elevate Tour. You see the team with them next. They were fantastic. Those of you who missed it, next time we bring them in, please come. We recently helped sponsor a performance they gave at St. Mary's School. And that was hugely well received. 
Hugely well received. I was in tears during it. It was really very, very moving. Children's presentation, but nonetheless laden with poignancy. And then, um, who's this gentleman? Paul Bell, yes. We're going to invite him and others to help us create a welcoming invite. He's fantastic. I'd never heard him before when he came to play at Hodgson's, and he was fantastic. These are occasions to build acquaintances and develop confidence. We're not going to stage a rubbish event. We're really not. Take my word for it. And full marks to all of those of you who performed and who came to the cabaret before Christmas. I thought it was fantastic. even tolerated me arsing around at the front as a compare. You were so charitable. How about this? Up on this stage here. Tremendous. When the band Iona came. This is a world standard band coming here to play in Beverly. If that's not good enough for you to bring somebody to, I'm not sure what more we can do. Let's have a little look. We're continuing to work in the care homes. We had a little bit of a break, and then they were struck with the plague before Christmas, but we've now back established in there. Now, here comes an important point. There's more to come. But I don't want to stand here sharing with you this little pithy anecdote I've had with my colleagues at work this week and that project I've been engaged in for the last 14 years and impress you with my endeavours. That would be a very poor outcome. What I want you to do is to find your place in all of this. Don't want you to try and support everything. Trust me, I've tried. It doesn't work. She looks happy, doesn't she, in the middle there? I love doing the care home activity, but I believe the time has come to hand the activity to someone else. And I believe that somebody else is here, or part of this congregation. And I want you to think about that. I'm not going to abandon it. I just need to hand over the responsibility. It's something I really enjoy doing. And I hope that if I'm consigned to an establishment like that in my twilight years, somebody would come and do the same for me. And you know something? Last Tuesday when we were at Lindham House, I was early. Amazing. And uh, the chap who, the social coordinator, David, reckons to be an atheist, but he sings the hymns. And I was talking about the prodigal son there, and I, shared, I did share with him a letter from my daughter. And he came and thanked me afterwards and said how moving he found it. Atheists are closer to God than you think, because at least they've taken a position of conviction in their lives. It's agnostics of the difficult category, because they can't care less. Think about that. So we will stage this, but there's more. And to be able to let that happen, we're going to have to work together so we can work individually. I can't do everything. I've had a knackering year in 2012. I had to find 600 hours of study time which I didn't have. And you come to the evening and your body is screaming out for sleep, but you've got to do another assignment. You've got to finish another exercise and send it off. And you've got to go down to Bournemouth to do the course before you sit the exams. And then you have to work through the night because you haven't got it already. And then the following day you can't stay awake. (laughs) It's not good on the ground. I'm not going to do that again. I am going to establish, hopefully with the help of some of you, where my greatest strengths lie and dwell upon them. Do you know something? I'm going to find out where yours are and encourage you to fulfill those. That's the way the body works. Not everybody trying to do everything, or most of us leaving a few to do it all. 
We each find our place because it's very rewarding when you're in the place that God wants you to be and you're fulfilling it. It doesn't matter whether it's a big wig type thing like Carolyn was saying or whether it's a modest thing. It doesn't matter. You may be the least significant key on the keyboard on your computer, but if it doesn't work, you soon discover it and it's an irritation. The number of keyboards I've replaced on computers because one key has stopped working. And it might be the semicolon or it might be the, I don't know, the hash key or something. Sooner or later, you need it, and then it's not there. There is no redundancy in this kingdom which we belong. There is no duplication. There is a role for you to fulfill. Every single one of you, do not think otherwise. So, these are some of the ideas that we have. I've already mentioned St. Mary's Church, St. Mary's School. Now, here's the thing. It's the largest primary, or do they call it junior school now? What's the thing? It's the largest primary school in Beverly, and it doesn't have a keyboard player. They call me the piano man. I can cope with that nickname. I like the ethos in that school. I like the head teacher in that school. And God has brought somebody to St. Mary's Church who is a perfect fit in that environment. Look what it says on the board behind you. Caring for children. What does it say? In a Christian context. Right there up front. I'm hoping to develop that relationship with that school. I'm not sure what that will mean. But by virtue of what I've told you already, to make these things happen, you're going to have to help me with some of the established activity so that we can move on and develop further. And it's tremendously rewarding working with children. It's rewarding working with adults, but it's what what, children, at that age, they're so inquiring, so uninhibited. Okay, what else is there? Did you know that the motto of the Lions Club is we serve? I've been involved with them in a roundabout sort of a way for quite some time. They would like me to join them. Probably if I did, it would halve their average age. But they selflessly do charitable work in this town. There's another area where we can get involved, whether it's something simple like helping me run the PA and the technical stuff when we do an outdoor event, something like that. If I've got to do that as well as play, then it's hard work for me. But they're good people, and we should be supporting what they're doing, because they're a positive emphasis in the town. Now then, how about this? Do you remember me talking about this? You wouldn't think of it instinctively, would you? A funeral director is an outreach opportunity. But after one of the services, Lorraine... Where's Chris? You know Lorraine, don't you? Yeah. Lorraine contacted me, and she said... Um, she said, I, I go to, I'll repeat it. She said, I go to quite a few funerals, as you might imagine. <laughs> Funeral director, not a big surprise. She said, I found that service moving. I said, oh, thank you. When you said at the end, or near the end, when we came to the committal, what I now do, I do with confidence and with conviction. I always say that. She said, I knew then that you believed what you were saying. Nine out of ten of our clients have no connection with the church, have no minister they could say is their own with whom they're acquainted, and in this time of need, they don't know where to turn. Would you be able to do more of this kind of thing? It is a great time of vulnerability when family members die and pass away. It requires a great level of sensitivity, not something that's one of my greater strengths. But that might strike a chord with you, because I can't do that on my own. 
what it would mean be getting to know the families, working with them, supporting them when they have the funeral service, keep in touch with them afterwards. And you heard from Ali about this. I'm not going to talk about it. In a couple of weeks' time, Ali's going to speak a bit more about the brink, which is going to come into play later in the year, which is a very different activity to improve our interface with the community. So then, let's just go to a quote you've seen before. Okay? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. Wrongly attributed to Einstein. He never said that. He did say there are two things that are infinite. The universe and human stupidity. And I'm not sure about the former. (laughs) But he didn't say that. She did. You might think, well, he's just listed some of the stuff we're doing already. Where's the change? (laughs) The change is our response as a church. I'm not going to run around organising all sorts of worthy things and then run around again trying to challenge people to come along. It's not a good use of my time. It shouldn't be necessary. And if we're serious about this business of sharing the gospel and you know, reducing the number of people in that downward pursuit I mentioned, this shouldn't require too much stimulus. Some of the things we're going to do, we're going to carry on doing. Some of them, they will change. For me, to succeed as an evangelist, which is unequivocally my calling, I'm not bothered whether I'm recognised. I don't want to be billed somewhere and people flong to the bigger tent at the one event because I'm the speaker. I don't want to peddle books and CDs and things. I don't want to be identified with it. It's the message that matters. I want people connected with God for themselves and moving on and becoming powerful. Maybe becoming better Christians than I am. That would be a wonderful outcome if that was the case. If as a flying instructor people become better pilots than me, I shall rejoice. If my daughters succeed academically more than me, I rejoice. For one of them already has. Even if she couldn't spell your properly in her letter. I'm not bothered whether as a church we're identified. Truth be known. We just need to be powerfully at work within the community. And when we're on our own, turn that television off. Put that distraction down. Get your Bible out on your knees. Read it and pray. Have a little agenda of names. Pray for people. Imagine them in a place they're not yet in. What you see, what you believe, what you hope for is a good step forward to where you want to become. And what does concern me, I've just told you the things that don't, what does concern me, and I hope it concerns you too, and passionately so, in case you hadn't noticed, is that this part of the nation, this tiny speck of the universe to which we belong, is confronted, is challenged, and is stirred to consider something beyond the superficiality that this world has to offer. We have entrusted to us the secret of life. A colossal price was paid for every one of us. Why in my case? I don't know. But I'm not going to waste that investment. And I pray God none of you do too. So as we come to a close, I'm not going to leave Rita Mae Brown with the final word. Paul said this. To the weak, I have become weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means, I might save some.
when you go from this place today, consider these things. Each of us individually may only make a small contribution, but together we can turn the world upside down. It's happened before, and it will happen again. Let's pray. Without you, Lord, we would be destitute, and yet you have chosen us. In these coming days and weeks, so orient our lives, our thinking and our energies and our efforts and our plans, that you are at the core. You first and foremost, you at the beginning, you at the end, and you at every space in between. This town is our responsibility because you have made it so. And we offer it to you, Lord, for your redemption. We thank you for the events of recent days and we pray for the opportunities that will give us to talk about you. And I ask, Lord, that you enrich every one of us in the expression of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.